Well, let me uh, be the second one to welcome you into the new year. Good to see you this morning. You, you really, you look alive. The first hour, I could tell a lot of people came in groggy. Now, in our family, we had a great, a great Christmas. It was a lot of fun. We hiked. We did all kinds of, of very fun things. But, um, but I know that after the new year, a lot of people are groggy because we've partied so much. We've had so many cookies and goodies and whatever else uh, you might enjoy at this time. But we're launching into a new year, and, uh, and by now, it's time to turn the page. And we're anticipating, what, what will this year hold for us? And I don't know if you realize this, but that's really what January is all about. I mean, January, uh, it, really the word comes to us from the ancient Romans who had a god named Janus. He was the god of gates and doorways. And he's pictured as having two faces, one looking forward and one looking back. And it's the origin of our word January, which uh, I'm thinking of Pastor Neely's message last week, being reminded of the blessings of the past year, of all that God has done for us, and, and then anticipating what we would pray and hope for in the new year. And so this really becomes a Janus moment for us. So when Pastor Mike asked me to speak uh, this kind of first message out of the shoot, I, I listened very attentively to his series, uh, God With Us, Emmanuel. And, uh, and it, it began to inspire me to think about what the next phase of this journey looks like. You know, there are a lot of people that are Christers. They're, they're Christmas and Easter only. And they come and they hear about the birth of the baby and Emmanuel, God with us. And that's a powerful message. I mean, it's a message of Christmas. It's a great message of hope. And the gift giving all has to do with the greatest gift that came into this world. But... But sometimes we forget that or we don't go beyond that and we, we celebrate that time, but, but then we get into the new year and before long, uh, it seems like things haven't changed for us. So I want to take you on a little journey. I want to take you back to the first disciples as they began to follow Jesus. They had the advantage of knowing him personally. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. So for them, Emmanuel was a present tense reality. And if you're like me, you've probably reflected on that on occasion. What, what would that be like to literally walk with Jesus? And this whole idea is captured in Mark's gospel. If you read through Mark's gospel, uh, there's a concept there we, we talk about in, in ministry circles called the with him principle. That's wherever Jesus went, the disciples were with him. And, and there's so much to be gained by being around people. We call it modeling today or being a role model. But for example, uh, the disciples were value vacuum cleaners. Everything they saw Jesus doing, whether they realized it or not, intuitively they were absorbing his teaching, his life, how he lived, how he healed people, how he related to people, the times that he spent in prayer, uh, the moments of conversations that lingered for hours. All of these things the disciples were observing and experiencing. In fact, in Jesus' day, there was a prayer that's offered on behalf of students that comes from the Talmud. It goes like this, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. And the whole idea is, as you journeyed along those dusty Middle Eastern roads, that, that uh, the dust of the rabbi would be kicked up on your, on your garments. You were walking so closely, following your teacher, whoever that teacher was. In this case, of course, the spiritual leader and Messiah that we know is Jesus. So as Jesus walked with his disciples over a period of three and a half years, they became comfortable with his presence to a certain degree. Obviously, there were times when they were challenged big time in their thinking, but, 
But Jesus began to share with them as they grew in their spiritual maturity that a time was coming when he would leave them, when he would return to heaven. And he talked about this on several occasions. And he talked about his imminent death and the fact that he would rise from the dead and he would return to his Father in heaven. And as Jesus began to speak of this, the disciples, I think, probably covered their ears. They they didn't really want to hear this message. I mean, how would we feel if if we'd been walking with Jesus and and we became intimate in knowing him and and his grace and his goodness and kindness and mercy and to know that he would one day be leaving us? So they had a hard time understanding it. And so when Jesus comes to the last day of his life before his death on the cross, he spends hours with them. This is the Passover season. And if you think about it, it's pretty remarkable because there are five chapters dedicated to the last night of Jesus' life in John's gospel, John 13 through 17. And these are some of the most profound words, as you might expect, of someone who is, in this case, about to die, speaking his sort of last will and testament to his disciples. They were were listening attentively to all the recap of his three and a half years of ministry. By the way, an interesting way to learn the Bible, I know many of you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, what I started doing years ago is is to contextualize the Bible, and by that I I would just memorize a key idea out out of each passage. So, for example, John 13 is where there's that wonderful story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, he says, uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you don't abide in me, uh, you're really not going to survive very effectively. You're going to die spiritually. In chapter 16, he says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer that I've overcome the world. And in John 17, he talks about the fact that uh, he wants to pray for his disciples as he prays for himself and believers in every generation. Now, I say all this just to remind you that in these few passages of scripture, some of the most profound teachings of all of the Bible appear as Jesus is recapping for his disciples what really matters. But I want to take you to one passage in particular today, and we're going to talk about this theme that we sang about this morning, about the Holy Spirit. Because I believe as we get into the new year, if we fail to understand the work and the role of the Holy Spirit, we will live a powerless year when we could live a dynamic year in our spiritual walk. Jesus says this to the disciples in John 14, beginning with verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, I think privately, when the disciples heard this, they, they, they kind of huddled up and scratched their heads and said, what on earth is he talking about? I mean, what is he saying to us? Another advocate? What's that all about? The spirit of truth? The world can't see or know him? Living in us? Now, for those of us that have been in the church any length of time, we know these phrases. They sound familiar to us. We're not really surprised by them. But, but listen to these words through the ears of someone that's never heard them before. When I was growing up, uh, we, we had a, a saying. We, we would call this kind of speech Protestant Latin. 
Protestant Latin is a term used to describe the in-house language that we sometimes use in the church that people outside the church have no idea what we're talking about. Washed in the blood, saved by the lamb, born again. Bless your heart. (laughs) That one we all kind of know. It's not good, by the way. Somebody says that to you, usually. Protestant Latin, what's it mean? These were unfamiliar concepts to the disciples. What's he talking about? So one of the things I really love about Overlake is we really work hard to keep the the cookies on the lower shelf in terms of when it comes to sharing the gospel, the gospel message is very simple. It's profound. It's radical. It will change your life. But the message is simple, and so it requires a simple response of faith. And when I get to the end of the message, I'm going to give you that opportunity if if you've never made that spiritual decision. So with that in mind, I hope you'll listen carefully to some of the things I want to say this morning. I had a vivid reminder during one of my trips to Israel of of how simple the gospel is, but how it can get lost sometimes on us. There's a debate that still rages if you go to Israel, and it's true all over the world in terms of Christianity, but at the actual sites, which of these is Jesus' authentic site? Did he die here, and was he buried here? Did he die over here, was he buried here? And so there are some sites that are more authentic than others, and they're not really sure. But there is an interesting place. It's one of the more impressive sites just outside of the old city of Jerusalem, and it's a place, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a hill. And the hill looks like a skull. And the interesting thing is, Jesus died at a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, as you look at these images, you can see the eyes and the nose, and, and you maybe can't see the mouth as well, but 100 years ago, they took a photograph, and it's, it's there at the site, and you can see it, and, and you see the eyes, the nose, and the mouth, and it's really kind of eerie to look at. And so many people think, that's Golgotha. That's where Jesus died. Now, some believe he was crucified on top of that place, on top of that skull. And you have the words of the famous old hymn, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. But you know, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert, if you figured that out yet. And, uh, and other experts, Bible scholars that are highly credible, say, no, no, that's not where Jesus would have been crucified. He wouldn't be crucified on a hill far away. But he would have been crucified perhaps at the base of that hill because there were two major roads. It was an intersection. Two major thoroughfares went through that intersection. And that's where the Romans, the hardest nails, cruel Romans, who, who battled against anyone that would try to oppose their empire to the extent that some of you have heard the story of Masada where in 70 A.D., Uh, 960 Jews fled to the top of this mountain to escape the Roman oppression. Rome had already destroyed Jerusalem in 66 AD. And they went to the top of this mountain. Rather than become slaves, they they wanted to fight against Rome. And so the Roman army came with thousands of troops, their encampments all around Masada. And they spent two and a half years building a ramp just to go up and get those 960 people. By the time they got to the top, 960 people were dead. There was a mass suicide. Rather than be enslaved, these people said, we will die. And so today, still members of the Israeli army, when they swear their pledge to their nation, stand on top of that mountain to pledge their allegiance never again. So at these crossroads where everybody would go by, that's where the Romans would place the cross. Because they wanted everyone to see, if you go against Rome, if you go against Caesar, this is your fate. So here's the interesting part of the story. 
So Jesus isn't buried on top, or crucified on top of that hill, if indeed that's the site. But at the bottom, well, when I got there for the first time, and this is true for everyone that goes there for the first time, I was a little bit stunned and maybe bummed out because at the bottom of that hill, what you see are buses. It's now a bus terminal. You could park your RV there, it appears. That's right at the base of that image we showed you a moment ago. And it bummed me until I thought about it. And then I thought, perfect. I started to hope this is where Jesus was crucified. It fit the biblical narrative. Born in a manger, died at a bus stop. <laughs> That's the whole point of the Bible, isn't it? God didn't become one like us. God became one of us. A fourth century martyr named Theodotus of Ankara said this, and I love this quote, in the incarnation, God chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that people would know it was the Godhead alone that changed the world. That's the beauty of the miraculous, you see. God alone gets the glory. Now, there's a more contemporary writer, some of you are familiar with his writing, Max Lucado is his name, and I like the way he describes if Jesus were with us today, here's what he says, he would be touchable, approachable, reachable. And what's more, he was ordinary. If he were here today, you probably wouldn't notice him as he walked through a shopping mall. He wouldn't turn heads by the clothes he wore, the jewelry he flashed. Just call me Jesus. You can almost hear him say. He was the kind of man you'd invite to your home to watch the Rams-Giants game at your house or make that the Seattle Seahawks 49ers. Yeah. He'd wrestle on the floor with your kids. He'd doze on your couch. He'd cook steaks on your grill. He'd laugh at your jokes, tell a few of his own. And when he spoke, when you spoke, he'd listen to you as if he had all eternity. I love that quote because sometimes we get a little too enamored with the idea of to be a Christian, or panicked even, is to be a radical. And the truth is, we're not all that radical. But the Spirit of God in us is radical. That's where the power is. So as we get into 2015, I, I want to spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit. At Christmas, we learn God is with us, but after Christmas, there's more to the story. And this part of the story is God is no longer just with us in the person of Jesus, but the Spirit of God lives in you if you're a Christ follower. I want to emphasize this because Bible doctrines get lost over the centuries. I could show you time and again of important doctrines that it's like they're abandoned. One of them, for example, the priesthood of all believers. This is the concept that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've received Jesus in your life, you can pray directly to God through Christ. It's why we close our prayers often in Jesus' name. We don't need a human mediator. But that doctrine was pretty much lost for hundreds of years and wasn't recaptured till the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And here I was growing up in a very good church as a young kid living in urban Chicago, and, uh, and yet all of the years I attended church, I maybe heard a couple messages on the Holy Spirit. And yet the Holy Spirit is where the power is for the follower of Christ. Unless you understand that he's our supernatural power source, you'll never live a powerful spiritual life. Instead, you'll end up trying to gin up your own spirituality. Of course, there's a term for this. It's called uh, spiritual superficial boundary markers. These boundary markers, we begin to define the things we don't do, and we say, well, that's why we're a Christian, because we don't do all of these things. 
rather than understanding that following Jesus is the most liberating pathway a person can follow. Following Jesus takes away the fear in the world. I know we live in a troubled world, and we're living in troubling times. Some of us have lived long enough to see various troubling times, but these are indeed troubled days. And there are many Christians who wring their hands and say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But that's not the message we're to share. We're to share a message of hope and good news. That's what Jesus calls us to. So what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a few moments talking about, giving you some facts, really, of the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in you if you claim to know Jesus. First of all is this fact. He advocates on our behalf. If you're filling in the blank on your notes, the word advocate's widely used in our day. I mean, if you have any involvement in human resources, HR, you know that sometimes there's a disgruntled employee and you've got to deal with the situation and they say, well, I want to bring my advocate along. What they're saying is I want someone else in the room, someone that's going to take up my cause, someone that's going to be by my side. Well, it's very interesting because that's, that's a New Testament Greek word, paraclete. Para means uh, to come alongside of and, and kaleo means to call or to call alongside of. And that's the word used, one of the words used to describe the Holy Spirit. He is called to walk alongside of us. That's, that's a pretty great thought. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, God is with me. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Another word is the counselor. He's the counselor. Still another word is the spirit of God is like a breath or like the wind. Now this is where it really gets interesting. Because the spirit of God is breath or wind means that you cannot see the spirit, obviously spirit, but you can, you can sense his movement. You sense it sometimes in your life. You don't maybe see the presence of the Spirit in your life, but maybe God ignites your thought process in a way that you didn't expect. Or, or maybe you see something occur that's miraculous and, and you realize the wind does indeed blow where it wills. On one occasion, Jesus was having a, a conversation and he was talking with a religious leader named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was no ordinary guy. He was a religious blue blood. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling court of Israel, some 71 members of that court, the high priest being the 71st member. He was one of the elite of society in that day. But he heard Jesus teach, and, and as he listened to Jesus' words, he began to understand that maybe I don't have all truth comprehended at this point in my life. And so he went to see Jesus at night. Now, John uses the metaphor of night on many occasions. Uh, he talks a lot about light and darkness, and he, he wants to sometimes show a contrast or create a metaphor. And in this case, he comes at night, and some, some say this means he came uh, in spiritual darkness. He came at night. He didn't have clarity. Others say, no, he came at night. He came when it was dark, Nick at night, you know, so nobody would see him. And he could come into Jesus' presence, ask questions, and then kind of uh, slink away, and, and no one would ever know the better. So he comes to Jesus, and he enters into this conversation, these, this spiritual dialogue with Jesus, and then Jesus speaks what must have sounded like, really, again, Protestant Latin, mysterious words. Jesus says, you shouldn't be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. There it is. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now hold on to that thought, because if you receive Jesus into your life, the spirit, like that wind, comes into your life and becomes the power in your life. How does that happen? There's a brilliant theologian, a New Testament scholar, really, named J. Gresham Machen, very well known in the last century, one of the New Testament professors at Princeton University back in the day. 
He says this, what the Holy Spirit does in a new birth is not to make a man a Christian or a woman, regardless of the evidence, but to clear away the mist from his eyes or her eyes and enable that person to see or attend to the evidence. Now think about this for a moment. There's a theological term for this. It's called prevenient grace. It's an interesting idea because, let's face it, biblical teaching is that we're all sinners. So if we're sinners, how do we respond to God? Well, prevenient grace says that the Spirit of God, in a moment when you're hearing the gospel, the good news of Christ, removes a veil potentially from your eyes and lets you respond freely or to reject freely. So that's the Holy Spirit's role. The Holy Spirit begins to convict. So what the Holy Spirit does is to give you an opportunity to respond to the spiritual truth. But that's not all the Spirit does. Just listen to these things the Holy Spirit does, and and your life will be enriched just hearing these. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, guides us, reveals Jesus, comforts us in our affliction, counsels us, gives wisdom, prays for us, gives us power, helps us in our weakness, gives us spiritual gifts, produces spiritual fruit in your life. I hope you see that all of this just goes to show that it's the Holy Spirit who has now been given to us as the ultimate resource for spiritual growth. That's fact number one. He's our advocate. He is with us. The second fact is this. This is the more convicting one. He's the spirit of truth. Now, I spent a lot of time in academia, and I can tell you, we have moved, and many of you know this, we've moved from what we call a modern era culture where we believe there was a right and a wrong, there was absolute truth, into an era of relativism. We often call it postmodernism. And you hear it in people's expressions. For example, they'll say things like, well, I've heard this many times. That may be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. Oh, you have your own private truth, I see. So we begin to become very arbitrary about the source of our authority, and we say, well, that's, that's truth for you, but not me. My community, the people that I hang with, we believe this. And so we become a tribal society, and you have all these tribes with their own sets of beliefs. The absolutes have been removed from the equation, but, but the problem is that's contrary to the reality of what makes truth, truth. It's why years ago, Charles Colson wrote an article called Why They Can't Teach Ethics at Harvard, And he got invited to Harvard, who at that time had a 30, I think it was about $30 million to chair a chair of ethics at Harvard, but they had been in a several-year search. They couldn't find anyone to teach ethics because ethics is predicated on some sense of absolute truth. And he was invited to Harvard, and no one could really question him. They said, all we can really teach is pragmatics. The ends justifies the means because when you take away absolute truth, you have nothing left but relativistic self-autonomy, my own rule. This is not a biblical truth, of course. So Jesus wants to clarify for these disciples, and he says in John 6, verses 7 through 11, 16, excuse me, but verily I say it to you, it's for your good that I go away, because unless I go away, the advocate cannot come, but if I go, the advocate will come. I will send them to you. Now, understand this about Jesus. When Jesus took on human flesh, he deliberately and willingly set aside all divine prerogatives. When Jesus performed miracles, when Jesus did things of incredible power, when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000, when he healed people and raised them from the dead, he was doing that in, in a unique way. He was doing that as fully man, but also with the capacity of God. But Jesus didn't leverage his godness in that moment other than his capacity. And I'll explain this simply this way. Jesus did for us what Adam could never do. 
Adam was without sin, the first person in the Bible, but he sinned. He was disobedient to God. Paul says in Romans 5, Jesus comes along. He's the perfect Adam. Jesus totally models what obedience to the Father is like for a sinless individual. Because he was sinless, only Jesus, because he was sinless in the flesh, he can relate to our humanity. He was one of us. But because he was God in capacity, his death has extensive value for everyone's sin. Jesus is the only one that can do it. That's why the Bible says, uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his monogenes, which means unique, one and only son. There's no one else like Jesus. But Jesus had the physical limitations, so he left the disciples so that the Spirit could come. Now, the Spirit has no such limitations. And as you look at the evil in the world that I described a few moments ago, understand that there's a restraining force in this world. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. As bad as things are, they could be much worse, but the Spirit of God lives in people, and he lives everywhere. Some of you know that uh, back in September, early October, uh, four of us had the opportunity to travel to Pakistan where we were invited to speak at a convention. And uh, this convention, there were several thousand people. There's a picture of it that you'll see on the screen. And there were thousands of people. Now, understand, Pakistan is 97% Muslim, 1% to 1.5% Christian. And here we were with thousands of believers. And I was a little wimpy the first night. I didn't know where the lines were, and I didn't want to cross any lines, knowing that as we were preaching, this was going out over loudspeakers, and there were all kinds of people hearing what I was saying. But the next night, they pulled me aside and said, no, preach the gospel, preach it. And I mean, don't say anything against any other religion, which I hadn't planned to do, but, but, but just preach the gospel. And I did. And who knows, and others did that were with me. And who knows what that message did. But here's the interesting thing about that story. That group of people, that convention, called the Mother of All Conventions in Pakistan, started in 1904. And it began when an American missionary named John Hyde went there with the message of the gospel, and he was unsuccessful, and he began to pray. He became known as Praying Hyde. He spent hours and hours praying. Then eventually he spent night after night, all night praying, praying for revival, praying that the Spirit of God would fall on people, praying that there would be people that would respond to Jesus. And at the end of that, there was a revival in 1904, and people by the hundreds began to come to faith. And now for 110 years, without missing any years, even the breakup of Pakistan or the, or the division between India and Pakistan, they still met, even though millions of people were killed in that transition. This convention went on. And I'll tell you, when, and everyone that was with me would agree, when you drive into that city of Selkot, you can sense the presence of God 110 years later. Jesus says, though, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can't see me any longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, get this. It's the Holy Spirit's job alone to convict people of their sin. The pastor preaches the word or the communicator, the evangelist preaches the word or you speak the word, but it's the Holy Spirit that draws people to himself. If you're a Christ follower here today and you made a genuine decision to put your trust in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit wooed you and called you and cleared away the mists and let you respond to the simple message of the gospel. But it shouldn't surprise us that many people don't understand, and this is the third fact. The Holy Spirit, he goes unnoticed by the world. 
Jesus said it. The world can't see him and the world can't know him. This is an earth-shattering statement because what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is the believer's secret sauce. If you're a Christ follower, you've got the secret sauce, the Holy Spirit in your life, and the Holy Spirit is an ingredient that the world does not understand. And I have to say, I I, I find myself praying more and more perplexed all the time that we as Christians, uh, on one hand, we kind of roll over and we're fearful to speak truth because of our politically correct day. On the other hand, there's a whole group of people that call themselves Christians that I wish wouldn't speak, so it kind of goes both ways, I guess. But the bottom line is we ought to be the most hope-filled, inspiring people as we enter 2015, that Christians are the ones that have a message of hope the world needs to hear. It's a message that brings life change. I was watching TV over the holidays, doing a little channel surfing, and I came across an interview with Franklin Graham, who's the son of the great evangelist Billy Graham. And as an evangelist in his own right, he was there talking to the interviewer and very quickly began to share the gospel. He began to talk about God's love at Christmas and what this represents and how all people are sinners and there's a barrier between heaven and earth and how Christ came to pay the penalty for our sin and God is just, but he's also righteous and He can only forgive a person if they seek his forgiveness. A real simple, clear presentation of the gospel. But so often we miss it because it is so simple. People think they have to earn or or work their way into God's favor. But I came across this little, I'll call it dog roll, but this little poem, if you will, that is called Theology in Five Lines. It's, it's, It's rather interesting. It goes like this. God formed man. Sin deformed him. Education informs him. Religion may reform him, but only Jesus Christ can transform him. Yeah, I think that deserves a shout out. But see, that's true because apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no ability to come to faith. And this is why so many people are confused in our world today. In Corinthians, Paul says this, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Makes sense? What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that's from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now, I know that's a little confusing to understand, but this last phrase is what I want to to focus on. The very last paragraph goes like this. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness. They cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Now, do you see the difference the Spirit makes in your life? I came to faith as a, as a young boy, even though I was from an unbelieving family, and, and I, I grew up in a great environment in Chicago. I could hear the best speakers. I mean the Billy Grahams of the world, and other, other incredible communicators when I was a young person. And I'll never forget meeting people along the way that totally detested Christianity until they came to faith, and they, they, they hated a particular preacher or communicator until they came to faith, and all of a sudden, there was a transformation. The words went from words of death to words of life. But friends, don't be surprised if people in the world, I'll use that term loosely to speak of people that haven't responded to the message of hope in Christ, Without the Spirit of God, they have no opportunity to understand the truth that the Spirit is teaching. The fourth fact is this. The final fact is he lives in us. You see, this is the transformation that 
that we can have as a church and we can have individually as people if we understand that once you invite Jesus into your life, everything changes. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, he couldn't say it more clearly, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He's dead, he says, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so Paul understood he went from slavery to sin to becoming a servant, a doulos, a, a slave, literally, of Jesus Christ. He belonged to Jesus lock, stock, and barrel, he would say. He goes on, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, here's the key. Only the God who created us has the power to recreate us. Christians enjoy a new lease on a new life, not a new lease on an old life. So here's the bottom line. If you've placed your trust in Christ, there ought to be something different about the way you live. There ought to be something different about the way you spend your money. There ought to be something different about the way you shop, the house you buy, the car you drive, the relationships you have. They ought to look different. If they don't look different, we got a problem, right? I have a friend from Denver, and he would always say this, so I I use it all the time. I can't forget it. He says this, change without change isn't change, right? If you say you're changed, but nobody sees a change, there's not change. Jesus said as well, you'll know people by the fruit they bear. Now, they might not bear fruit immediately. Some come to faith and they immediately bear fruit. It's it's incredible what God does through new believers. Other people, it takes longer, like fruit growing on a tree. But listen, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, there ought to be some fruit, Jesus said. So if you're not growing in your love for God and people, that ought to be a flashing red light on the dashboard of your life. But let me say something I think that's a hang-up for many people. And if you get this concept, it will transform your life. I had people grabbing me in the hallway after the first service saying this, this is the truth that changed their life because they understood it earlier. Once you put your trust in Christ, your identity is no longer as a sinner but as a saint. You don't need to strive to be a saint but to accept your identity as a saint who sometimes sins. Now let me unpack this a little bit for you. I hear Christians say this all the time. Maybe you've said it. I'm sure I've said it over the years on occasion. We're all sinners. Have you ever heard that one? We're all sinners. And we say it as kind of a way to level the playing ground and we're all the same and we're all But, you know, that's not really true if you're a Christ follower. The truth if you're a Christ follower is you were a sinner, but now you're a saint. And here's the thing. If we're Christ followers, but we still have an identity of sinners, then we walk a pathway of performance. We try to perform for God. Think about your New, Year res- New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. All the things we tend to put down. And then you blow it a few weeks into it or four days into it, as Pat would have us know today. And, and, and suddenly you feel like a failure. Why? Because, because you feel like you failed God. You tried to perform for God. You were striving to be a saint. It sounded so good. But you were a sinner striving to be a saint in your mind. How different is it when you go on the other side of the equation and God says, I, I don't, you don't have to perform for me. I love you unconditionally. I accept you. My grace is freely given to you. You're no longer a sinner, you're a saint. Paul writes to the Ephesians, to the saints, to the Hagias, to the holy ones, to the set-apart ones. He writes to Philippi, to the saints at Philippi. Nowhere in the New Testament ever is a Christian referred to or a believer referred to as a sinner. Nowhere. We're saints. 
So as we head into 2015, what better way to do so than to stop and reconsider where you're at spiritually? After I gave this message the first hour, a couple came up to me, and they're, they're awesome people, and, and we were talking about revival. They were talking about the revival I mentioned in Pakistan, and there have been revivals all over the world, and some of us have experienced the Jesus movement, and we've seen great revivals of the Spirit of God. And they said, boy, we don't see these revivals, but why don't we talk about that? Why don't we hear about that? That's why we don't see them, because we don't talk about it. We don't hear about it. But I want to encourage you as we move into the new year that you would pray in your own life that the Spirit of God would be alive in you if you're a Christ follower, that you would just yield more of yourself to the Spirit. You don't need more of the Spirit. The Spirit needs more of you. Just yield to the Spirit. I remember taking a class on Ephesians, the filling of the Holy Spirit. A student ran up to the professor and said, I feel so full of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's spilling out of me. And he says, well, why don't you go out and slosh it on some other people? You know, it's good advice. But maybe you've not made that step of faith. And so I want you to bow your heads with, and just listen as I speak some words of hope into you. What I'm going to share with you is true for everybody. It was true for me. It's true for everybody in this room that knows Jesus and everybody listening and watching on the Internet. First, you have to recognize that in God's eyes, until a person does respond to Christ, we are sinners. We're lost, the Bible says. We've wandered from God. Sinners in need of a Savior. Second, to realize that God loves you and he provided a way out of sin's trap. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. If you need hope this morning, that's why Jesus came. The third step, though, is you need to repent of your sins. To repent means to confess, to acknowledge. But more than that, it means to change your life direction 180 degrees. I was walking away from God as a sinner, but now I've turned my face back toward God. And then finally, to respond by faith, to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to bank on his finished work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, not your performance, but to trust by faith in what he did for you and what he did for me. The Bible says if you pray that prayer and you're serious, that the Spirit of God will come to live inside your life. I prayed that prayer years ago, and I sensed the reality of God in my life. And I know many of you have done the same. If you've not done that, I pray this is your morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we continue to pray? Father God, I pray if there is even one here today that needed to hear this message of hope, that there is life and trust and change all wrapped up in the Holy Spirit of God that we sang about so powerfully this morning, that our life can be transformed. And Jesus, for all of us who have believed and have followed you, we thank you, Lord. We want to be bold in our faith. We want to be optimistic. We want to be salt and light in this world. We want to be the fragrance of life in this world. So, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, we would just let you flow through us in a way that honors you and that brings hope to a world that so desperately needs to hear about hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.